welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth, he will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Our responsive reading is from Psalm 148. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded that they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave them the creed and it shall not pass away. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Would you pray with me, Lord? Every new duty for us requires more grace than we now possess, but not more than is found in you. You are the divine treasury in whom all fullness dwells, and it is to you that we go to for grace upon grace until every void made by sin is replenished. Lord, hear our prayer as we exalt the holy name of Jesus and all the people of God say, Amen. As I thought about uh, this week's exhortation, as we lead ourselves or as we are led into our period of confession this morning, one of the things I really came to realize um, is that for me personally, and perhaps for you as well, that we think a lot about our faith, and we think a lot about the faith that has been instilled in us, and of course we think about the challenges to that faith. And I know as you come to my mind, and as I pray for you, the prayer that is constant in addition to what I may be aware of in your life that um, I want to bring before God, one of the things I I do with, with everyone is I pray for God to strengthen their faith. And I, and I pray that for myself as well. I remember um, our Lord turning to Peter in the word of God, and he said, Peter, Satan requires, demands, desires to sift you like wheat. And I remember Jesus saying, or not saying rather, you know, Peter, I'm going to pray that you, you don't have any tribulation. I'm going to pray that, uh, that Satan does not come against you. But the Lord rather prayed 
that I pray for your faith to remain strong, that you will be steadfast in the midst of that tribulation. And of course, we know in John 16, Jesus said that in this world we will have tribulation, but we are to take courage because he has overcome the world. And so as we think about faith and the challenges to it, I think we can get sometimes focused on how we may feel inadequate in our faith, how we may feel the deficit in our faith, um, that we're not exactly where we need to be and all of that. And we can become very uh, introspective and, and focused on that thing, that aspect of our faith. Well, um, there's a book that I've read and, and Joe and Luke have read, uh, and we as elders are reading or have read, and it's a book called Why Johnny Can't Preach. And it's a, it's a real good book as far as helping us along and what, what God has assigned us and required of us to do when we ascend to this pulpit here on the Lord's Day morning. So as I thought about faith, I was reading this book. I came upon a, a section of it, and I want to share that with you. And I, and I hope I can read it clearly enough where you can process what the, uh, this, the author of this, T. David Gordon, is saying. And he's talking about preaching that feeds the soul and builds faith. And I'll just read it. It's not very long, okay? The, the author says, Faith is not built by preaching introspectively, constantly challenging people to question whether they have faith. Faith is not built by preaching moralistically, which has exactly the opposite effect of focusing attention on the self, rather than on Christ in whom our faith is placed. Faith is not built by joining the culture wars and taking pot shots at what is wrong with our culture. Here's the shot here. Faith is built by careful, thorough exposition of the person, character, and work of Christ. So I want to read this. One of the great articulations of this particular reality, what I just said in the history of Christian literature, occurs in a letter written by Clement Reed Vaughan to the renowned Southern Presbyterian theologian Robert Louis Dabney. Dabney moved from Virginia to Austin, Texas, almost 20 years after the Civil War, and lived there for another 15 years. In his latter years, he became blind and weak, and knew his death was near. He wrote to his friend Vaughn, wondering whether he would have strong enough faith to face his impending death. And Vaughn's reply was as theologically trenchant as it was pastorally lovely. He wrote back to Dabney and asked Dabney what a traveler would do if he came to a chasm over which a bridge was spanned. Here's part of that letter. What does he do to breed confidence in the bridge? He looks at the bridge. He gets down and examines it. He doesn't stand at the bridgehead and turn his thoughts curiously in on his own mind to see if, if he has confidence on, in the bridge. If his examination of the bridge gives him a certain amount of confidence, and yet he wants more, how does he make his faith grow? Why, in the same way, he still continues to examine the bridge. Now, my dear old man, let your faith take care of itself for a while. And you just think of what you are allowed to trust in. Think of the master's power. Think of his love. Think how he is interested in the soul that searches for him and will not be comforted until he finds him. Think of what he has done, his work, 
That blood of his is mightier than all the sins of all the sinners that ever lived. Don't you think it, don't it, think it will master yours? Now, dear old friend, I have done to you what I would want you to do to me if I were lying in your place. The great theologian, after all, is just like any other one of God's children. And the simple gospel talked to him is just as essential to his comfort as it is to a milkmaid or a plowboy. May God give you grace not to lay too much stress on your faith, but to grasp the great ground of confidence, Christ, in all his work and all his personal fitness to be a sinner's refuge. Faith is only an eye to see him. I have been praying that God would quiet your pains as you advance and enable you to see the gladness of the gospel in every step. Goodbye. God be with you as he will. Think of the bridge. That particular uh, portion of this book um, was very helpful to me uh, this week, but I think it, it, it speaks to all of us that all of us have faith. Everybody on this planet has faith, but faith has an object, always. By definition, it has an object, and the object of our faith is Christ. And too, too often, to reiterate, and I'm not going to beat, beat this to death this morning, because I think uh, Vaughn did such a beautiful job here, is that too often we can just look and become hamstrung and static by considering the struggle versus looking to what? We, we don't look to the author and perfecter of our faith. Remember, Peter walked on water. The Lord beckoned him. He wanted, to go, he wanted to walk to Jesus on the water. And that doesn't happen. It's not certainly not normative. But Peter sees our Lord out there. He sees him standing on water. And he wants to come to him. The Lord beckons to him. But what happened to Peter? The waves were churning. The storm was going on. And Peter took his eyes off the author and perfecter of his faith. And he saw the waves and began to sink. And cried out. For help. So the exhortation this morning, I think, is rather obvious, but I'll try to uh, sum it up in a little bullet here, that we want to be very uh, sensitive, we want to be very preoccupied, we want to be very fervent in looking at Jesus, the author, the author and perfecter of our faith. When we feel weak, he is strong. And Paul, remember again, I'll leave with one more thing. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about this affliction that he has, and he has to be delivered from it. And our Lord's reply to him was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That might be a little hard to understand, or if not hard to understand, sometimes it can be hard to swallow. But that's our God, and he cares for us, and he loves us, and he desires he desires us to be fully his. He desires us to be fully committed to him. And he knows we will falter. He knows we will struggle. But all we need to do is not look down and see where our feet have, have allowed us to end up at, but to look to, to, to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The, the, the psalm says he will reach down and pull us out of the miry clay. He will set us on the rock. And we know the rock is Christ. So as we think of 
these struggles and, and the, the times just this week alone, since our last gathering on Lord's Day last week, what the struggles we've had in our hearts and in our minds, the conduct of our life, all these things, we want to come to God and we want to confess our sins. So with that being said, and as, if you, and as you are able, if you would kneel with me to join me in a corporate confession of sin. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. The Lord and giver of life tells us in Proverbs 28, verse 13, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. People of God, you have humbled yourselves in faith. Now hear the good news and believe. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Let us joyfully sing the doxology in response to this glorious news. Our scripture reading this morning is coming from 1 Peter, verses 1 and 2. This is from the ESV. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Please pray with me. Lord, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use this time and this message from your word to edify, exhort, convict, and bless this body joined together on this Lord's day. I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you and that any of the words spoken today that are errant or falsely represent you would be immediately forgotten and cast aside. Please bless this time, I pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, officially, Christ Covenant. Good morning. Good morning. It's, uh, it's great to be up here again, and it's also great that I'm not talking about all sorts of sexual sins and uh, Canadian parliamentary bills and, and all of that. So uh, if you weren't here for that time, you know, you missed out. So with that out of the way, uh, I'm going to be preaching on two whole verses in First Peter chapter 1. Lord willing, I'll be able to preach out of Peter uh, some more as time goes on, but for today, we'll just be looking at verses 1 and 2, but don't worry, there's, there's a lot in there. I've always had a bit of a fascination uh, with Peter's epistles, and I think it's because there's a good mix of doctrine, there's some hearty exhorting, and there's some challenging things that Peter brings up. Right out of the gate, we have him uh, proclaiming his apostleship. We have him talking about exiles of the dispersion. We have election. We have foreknowledge and obedience to Jesus. Well, I want to look at the book as a whole first and give us some background. So before we jump into the exciting part, let's take a look at this book of 1 Peter. Um, Some questions to think about as we look at the book as a whole. How should Christians respond when they are a minority within society, especially when those around them persecute them For their commitments. Well, the author writes about these things and tries to address some of these questions. This letter was written in the first century, and Christianity had spread widely across the Greco Roman world, but was still very much a minority religion. First Peter addresses Christians not in a single city, but across a wide swath of territory in ancient Asia Minor, which corresponds to regions representing much of modern day Turkey. 
This letter is a circular letter, meaning that the letter courier Silas, also known as Silvanus, traveled from province to province throughout Asia Minor to convey the contents of this letter to Christians throughout the entire region. The message of this letter was clear, and it was an important one for the author to, who went through such pains to have it delivered to such a widespread audience. What is the essence of the message? The heart of it is that Christians should, in word and deed, stay true to Christ in the face of persecution. Before we get into the heart of the message, though, let's talk about the author and maybe more, more clearly where, what date, around what time it was written. So kids, I'm going to involve you early, all right? All of you kids out there. I want you to think about this book of the Bible. I want you to think about the title, 1 Peter, and I want you to tell me who do you think wrote the book of 1 Peter? Anybody? Yes. All right. Okay, good job. So, right, we believe the book to be written by Peter. I know, it's very scandalous, right? If you can imagine, there's actually some dispute over uh, who the author of 1 Peter is in some circles. We don't want to camp in those circles, so I'm going to digress there. There is a little part at the end of chapter 5, though, that says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So Silvanus, as I just mentioned, was also named Silas. And if we're wondering maybe why in the world that would be mentioned, or why I would say I believe Peter wrote this if it said it was by Silvanus, well, we just need to understand that many of the apostles used scribes. This is... uh, Paul, Paul refers to scribes oftentimes in his books as well. A scribe is just someone who writes things down for someone else while they're talking. It can be. Um, I can imagine that Peter and some of the other apostles may have been like Les, who already told us he likes to move around while he's talking, right? Maybe they like to move around. Uh, they have someone talk, they have someone write while they speak the inspired words that we have now in our hands. So this is, and there's also a bit of speculation based on what I've read, but it appeared to be common for scribes to be trained in language, so that while the apostles were talking, the scribe could capture their thoughts, their words, on paper in the language of the hearers. That, is, that presumes, though, that maybe Peter didn't know Greek, just because he was a lowly fisherman. Some argue, because he was a lowly fisherman, he couldn't write well. But the scribe's ability to use correct language and grammar in Greek is, is a good explanation for that. But there's also not a good reason really for saying that Peter didn't understand Greek because Greek was like a second language in that day at that time, and it's very likely that he understood Greek. Therefore, the given an obvious statement at the beginning of the book declaring Peter to be the author and the use of the scribe to explain how it could have come by Silvanus gives us no good reason to really question that this is Peter. But with that out of the way, okay, Peter, who was he? Peter, whose name was also Simon, uh, was nicknamed Cephas by our Lord. John one forty two says, He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The name Peter in the Greek, as I'm sure many of you know, also is a name for rock. So Peter was really nicknamed the rock. I have a sneaking suspicion, though, that this does not mean that he was built like Dwayne Johnson. However, it is very interesting to me that that Jesus would nickname him the rock while knowing that he would soon be considered a vessel of Satan. 
he would run away from Jesus after his arrest and then deny him three times. That had to be some serious humble pie for Peter after being called the rock, being known as the rock in his groups, and then fleeing like this little child. But if you are experiencing a time of humility, if you see God tugging to remove pride or sin in your own hard heart inside of you, just remember that we are in good company. We are in the company of the apostles. We are in the company of Peter. Peter had another brother, Andrew. He was uh, the one that led him to the Lord. So he had, had some family there. Peter was married. Um, and we read about Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law in Matthew 8. He was a fisherman. He was bold at first and a bit arrogant at times. Then he was fearful after Jesus was arrested. And then he was bold again, as we see in much of... Uh, the book of Acts. Also, an ancient tradition holds that he demanded to be persecuted differently from Jesus so that upon his death, he was said to be crucified upside down. Peter's name being listed first in most of the accounts of the calling of the disciples indicates his importance and his leadership in that group. So now that we know a little bit more about Peter, uh, let's look at uh, who he was talking to and about when this took place. The people mentioned in the opening verses were referred to as exiles or pilgrims of the dispersion. And it appears that these were considered spiritual foreigners rather than any Jewish, actual Jewish pilgrims from Israel or Jerusalem. This most likely means that his letter was intended for Gentile believers who had fled the clutches of the Roman Empire and were dispersing to escape severe persecution as it was beginning to just rage on unchecked within the vicinity of Rome and was expanding to some of the outlying areas. So it's well documented that Peter had been to parts of Galatia and Asia, but there was no record of his work in Pontius, Cappadocia, or Bithynia. And actually, Paul was forbidden. He was forbidden to go to Bithynia, as uh, it was stated in Acts 16. Uh, Easily, it could have been, though, that uh, some of Paul's converts had founded churches in those areas. Um, And it also could have been, though, that Peter had gone to some of these areas. Uh, Peter had other ministries that were discussed, but not really specifically said, hey, he went there, he did this. Not, not to the degree that we know about what Paul did. So Peter himself could have ministered to these areas, and that makes sense maybe why some of these uh, believers were fleeing to these areas. They knew there were churches there. So it's likely that these groups were mostly Gentile Christians, but there could have been some Jews in there as well. So let's examine the date. Through the reading that I've done on this, most scholars agree on an approximate date of this writing that would have been somewhere near the end of Peter's life. The end of Peter's life would have been a few years after the great fire in Rome under Emperor Nero and the frenzy of ensuing persecutions then in 64, starting around 64 AD. This was a significant event, though, the great fire. It was recorded in history, so the date is pretty firm. Everyone seems to believe that it was in July of 64 AD. This great fire was blamed on the Christians by the Emperor Nero, and so after this event, the persecutions experienced by the Christians began to really escalate. It makes sense, then, that Peter was writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. It's suggested by some commentators that the Romans blamed Nero for the fire. Tradition holds that it was likely Nero, as he was very well known for a lustful, power-hungry dictator who needed more room to build more things, It's believed that his desire to build larger buildings for himself led to the Great Fire. He was 
absolutely insane in, in some accounts. People refer to him as being insane. However it happened, though, Nero needed a scapegoat, and the Christians fit the bill. It was a few short years after this that Peter and Paul both likely were crucified in Rome, somewhere around 67 to 68 A.D. So Nero's death was recorded in 68 A.D., so Peter was likely crucified just before that. So this writing likely occurred after the fire, before his death, in around 67. So it's likely also, though, that it was before all of the persecutions got crazy. It's beneficial to note how intense the persecution of the saints was for a few hundred years, though, after these events. The Christian church was brutalized much during this time, and it wasn't even recognized as a a valid religion until about the time of Constantine in 313 AD, at least not by civil governments like Rome. This letter of Peter to the believers has been and will be of great comfort to anyone in Christ who experiences persecution from principalities or powers of this world. This keys on the main theme of the letter, as he writes in chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He details much of how the grace of God can give great strength and peace to stand in the face of persecution. It was written of Nero that he encased some Christians in wax and burned them in his garden. It's said also that he crucified them and and then fed others to wild beasts. It's hard for us to imagine such persecution. As we tread forward in our walk, we will no doubt encounter others who wish to persecute us. So let us remember, though, that the company that we are in, and as we read about or approach other such situations, no doubt there are many atrocities and horrors being committed against Christians today in other countries, like Iran, Syria, Nigeria, Those places and events are not very real to us in America, unless you have some sort of ties with those places specifically. But we don't know what the Lord will have us do for him in the future. Know that 1 Peter is available to give us strength and encourage our faith. There's uh, very much news, especially in some of those African countries, where you have groups and gangs like Boko Haram and others where they'll run around just looking for Christians to slaughter, and it's just, it's just terrible. So there are other things going on, and praise God that we don't have to deal with that right here. So as we have identified Peter, we've identified kind of his background, uh, the believers who dispersed in Rome and the events and dates of the writing. Let's go ahead and look at the text, those couple of verses, a little bit closer. I'm going to read this again, just for a reminder. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. As we work through these couple of verses, I want to kind of focus on just three areas. First, I want to talk about what it means that Peter was an apostle of Christ. Second, we'll walk through what it means to be elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And third, we'll finish with what it means to be sanctified and sprinkled for obedience to Jesus. So Peter was an apostle. He introduced himself as much. Peter was widely regarded as one of the two main pillars of the church and one of the lead apostles. 
Paul, of course, being the other to whom we ascribe so much of the New Testament writings. There is some implied authority here in using that word. The word apostle can be a synonym of disciple, but it is from the Greek word apostolos and means literally one sent forth. This is often a reference to one of Christ's original 12 disciples when they use that term, but it can also refer to someone who was instructed and sent by the will of the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul was not one of the original 12. We know this, but he was directly called by Jesus on the road to Damascus very dramatically, and it is, he is certainly counted as an apostle and identifies himself as one in many of his epistles. Those with firsthand witness or testimony, the power and instruction of Jesus, were considered apostles. Peter was considered the leader of the 12 and no doubt carried some extra authority as such. It was an important enough term for Peter to use it specifically, which is why we should note it as well. One of the themes that we see from Paul's language is the fact that he was called or willed to be an apostle. And he uses this language even more than Peter does. He wrote a lot more than Peter did. Examples of this type of language abound. I'm just going to give a few. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God. 2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. See, we, trend, we kind of have a trend here, right? This language of being called an apostle or being an apostle according to the will of God ties in then also to this word that Peter uses, elect, elect exiles, talking about election. Now, as Les mentioned last week, he desired to preach on the doctrines of grace, and Joe and I kindly said no. Okay, so it wasn't just no, right? But we did ask him to wait, and we said, hey, these are going to come out naturally in the scriptures as we work through things. And so here I am, starting First Peter, and we have elect exiles. So I'm going to talk about election. Sorry, Les. I don't mean to steal your thunder there. but So I think it's, necess- it's, it's very appropriate. And in the, in the acrostic tulip that Les mentioned last week, this would fall under unconditional election, or the U in the acrostic tulip, election. I like the appropriate term, though, that R.C. Sproul uses, which isn't much different, but it's sovereign election talking about the sovereignty of God. Still, the election part is the main theme here. This word elect is from the ESV, but it is also translated as chosen in the NASB. Uh, This word is eklektos from the Greek and signifies picked out or chosen, according to the Strong's Greek definitions there. Now, kids, you you can relate to this a little bit. Okay, it's not exactly the same, but something similar would be choosing teams outside. We're doing football. We're doing tag outside, right? There's a captain. That captain is appointed, and that captain would choose or pick you, and you might not have any say. You wouldn't have any say in like, oh, I want to be on this team or that team. No, the captain just chooses you. He picks you out. You are chosen. You don't necessarily have a say in it. It's this kind of choosing by God that we're talking about. 
this word is echoed in other passages of Scripture, and I think we would do well to recall some of them if we're going to talk about this. So, here's one. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect. Those days will be cut short. Matthew 24. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Matthew 24 again, verse 31. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Luke 18.7. Who shall bring any charge to God's elect? It is God who justifies. This is Romans 8. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Romans 11.5-6. And that word is chosen, but it's the same Greek word, elect. What then? Israel failed to obtain what is, was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Romans, 7, Romans 11, verse 7. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 2 Timothy 2.10. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Titus 1. These verses are many. There are more uh, with this theme in the Bible. Closely related to this word is the word election. Election is from the Greek word ekloge and is translated as election, but usually can be also translated as, it's usually translated as election, but it can be translated as chosen. And the, the word means in the definition means divine selection. One of the strongest arguments for God's sovereign will and or divine selection and the choosing of his people, I think, is in Romans 9. And I want to give just a short snippet here. Here's an example of this ekloge word usage. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. This is Romans 9, 11, and 12. So that's an example of that word being used in the passage. And I want to also pull from the second book of Peter. So we're jumping ahead. We're going on to the second book, but hey. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Second Peter verse one, or chapter 1, verse 10. So I'm laying all of this out here to just give you examples. This, the example in this theme is used in much of the Bible. This language is used a lot in the Bible. Election, or the elect, is inherent to descriptions of God's people in the Bible. This leads me to ask the question, why are so many people opposed to this idea of election? I like the answer to that question. I think the answer to that question, I think, is to go back to Les's sermon last Sunday. Thank you, Les. Les laid out the depravity of man in Genesis. It is so essential that we have the doctrine of the depravity of man, or radical corruption, as I also like a little bit better, but firmly planted in our minds. Because, as Les mentioned, the rest of our views of the doctrine of man flow out of this understanding of depravity. As Paul says in Ephesians, and you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 3. The truth is that apart from God, we are dead. There is no life, no ability, no action, no decision, no nothing that can be done from a disposition of death. The finality of that statement should be evident. We are dead apart from Christ. And yet people often recoil at the thought of election, that God chose us. It's somehow it wasn't our decision. Well, somehow it wasn't our good looks. It wasn't our amazing intellect. Somehow the reason for the Spirit of God to cause us to have faith. But this reality of death cannot be escaped. I want to read a portion of A.W. Pink's exhorting, exhorting on people's views of God's sovereignty. Uh, this is just an excerpt that he has from uh, uh, it was an article in the Banner of Truth in 1961 titled The Sovereignty of God. We are well aware that what we have written is in open opposition to much of the teaching that is current, both in religious literature and in the represented pulpits of the land. We freely grant that the postulate of God's sovereignty, with all its corollaries, is at direct variance with the opinion and thoughts of the natural man. But the truth is, the natural man is quite unable to think about these matters. He is not competent to form a proper estimate of God's character and way, and it is because of this that God has given us a revelation of his mind. And in that revelation, he painfully declares, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's from Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Continuing with A.W. Pink's uh, excerpt, in view of this scripture, it is only to be expected that much of the contents of the Bible conflicts with the sentiments of the carnal mind, which is enmity against God. Our appeal, then, is not to the popular beliefs of the day, nor to the creeds of the churches, but to the law and testimony of Jehovah. All that we ask for is an impartial, attentive examination of what we have written, and that made prayerfully in the light of the lamp of truth. That's the end of his his exhortion. 1961. Boy, if the sovereignty of God was being opposed in religious literature and pulpits to that degree back then, how much more today? Today we have an overwhelming attitude of independence, both in the world and in mainline churches. This idea, born out of the carnal mind and brought up in relativism, is sinful and it needs to be repented of. We do not determine our own destiny of salvation any more than we determine our own sex at birth. Another one of God's eternal decisions, right? Boy or girl. Those are the only options. Let's not get sidetracked there, I guess. Now, I also want to address a false explanation for those who don't want to accept God's sovereignty and election. It's a false understanding of this word foreknowledge. Popular explanation, a popular explanation to try to sidestep this is to say foreknowledge just means that God stared down the channels of time and he saw what decision you would make and said, well, I see that 
Wink's going to choose to follow me, and so I'm going to elect him. But that put God's election, puts God's sovereignty back into the hands of the sinner. And like we said, we're dead, apart from Christ. God did not just know ahead of time what we would decide to do. If it's not obvious from the previous description of how dead we are, dead means dead, spiritually, so no dead can bring or can decide to do anything good in regard to our own salvation. We don't make the choice because we're dead. It is and must be a supernatural call by God. There are plenty of other passages besides ones read today that support the fact that our calling and election is not of ourselves. But anyway, at this point, let's move on from that fact and ask the question, what does this doctrine lead to? If we know that it is not inherently in us to choose God, but God must first choose, elect, or call us, what attitude must we have? Let's look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Very popular verse. I know many of you know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Also, I want to read a bit more. I want to revisit this Romans 9 passage because I think it postulates where we're at. And it gives us an example of how we need to think about things. It also answers a lot of questions about this doctrine. Romans 9, starting at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Will you then say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Good question, right? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. It's Roman 9, Romans 9, 14 through 24. This passage was so integral to my understanding of God's sovereign will and the choosing of his people. I have been so thankful that God has placed these words in Holy Scripture. Our natural inclination is to question God's will. That's our carnal mind. This is a blessed realization. I'm sorry. Our natural inclination. So how can we save some? How can God save some and not others? And we want to question that. How is that justice? We want to question that. Well, this is our natural inclination, one that's enslaved to sin from birth, but God clearly is just. 
And he is described so throughout Scripture and all that he does. He is holy and righteous. So if we misunderstand this doctrine, then we need to carefully evaluate where our sense of injustice, where our questioning in this matter comes from. Because it shouldn't come from the Word of God. Therefore, as Paul says in Ephesians, and also explains in Romans, it is by grace, through faith, not of our own doing. This is a blessed realization in the Reformed faith. So how ought we to act? Like children of God who have been given the greatest gift that we could have ever asked for. And it has nothing to do with us. We should be thankful. We should be humble. We should be thankful and great. We should have humble and thankful hearts for the salvation of our lost souls. And that's the name of the game. We also should want to share this thankfulness and gratefulness with others. And how do we do that? Through joyful obedience to God's word, through hospitality, through sharing of this good news with others that God saves sinners. Amen? This is the heartbeat of Reformed theology, one of dependence on God that overflows into thankfulness and gratitude. And one of the, one of the reasons that I think Reformed theology is so biblically wonderful in so many ways. Let's go ahead and move on. Um, I don't have all day here, I guess. Uh, Let's talk about sanctification a bit and the sprinkling that Peter mentions. In verse 2, he says, In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we just talked about a little bit about the joy that leads to obedience. If we're not obedient to Christ, then our joy in Christ is misplaced, and we do not glorify our Father in heaven. But Peter is saying that we will also be sanctified through the Spirit. And to be sanctified is to be set apart, washed, renewed, refined. We are sanctified by the Spirit, but also through the reading of the Word and through prayer. In one commentary that I looked at, John MacArthur says, and yes, he does say some good things, the outworking of God's choice of the elect made in eternity past in time by the sanctifying work of the Spirit The sanctifying work encompasses all that the Spirit produces in salvation, faith, repentance, regeneration, and adoption. Thus, election, the plan of God, becomes reality in the life of the believer through salvation, the work of God which the Holy Spirit carries out. We receive this sanctification as saints, and we can remember that Joe taught us so very well. What are saints, kids? People who have sanctuary access. That's right. Nice job. So people have sanctuary access. So this is carried out through the saints, through sanctuary access. As exiles, Peter wanted us to know that even though we are persecuted, even though we may be kicked out of our own land, we are his chosen ones and we will be sanctified through the Spirit. Romans 6 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6, 22 and 23. And then in Romans 7, we read, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order, that we may, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now are released from the law, having died to that which was held captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit 
and not in the old way of the written code, Romans 7, 4 and 6. So it is no longer, we are no longer to live according to the flesh. And Tyler has been preaching on that in Ephesians, right? But we're supposed to serve God. And the evidence of this is our fruit that we bear. Our sanctification leads to eternal life. And the outward evidence of these things happening to us, around us, spiritually, is our good works. We are no longer bound by the law, but are freed through the blood of Jesus. So now regarding that blood, what is the significance of the sprinkling of the blood that Peter mentions? We know, according to the New Testament, that we are bought with the blood of Christ. That part is somewhat obvious to most Christians. But in the Old Testament times, on the Day of Atonement, when reconciliation was made for the people of God, the blood of the animals was taken to the high priest, into the holy holies, and sprinkled on the mercy seat. And in another commentary that we looked at, that I looked at, R.C. Sproul comments about this, saying, quote, that sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifices served as a blood covering on the throne of God. It was a symbol of the covering of our sins by the blood of the sacrifice. All of the symbolism carried out on the Day of Atonement pointed beyond the Old Testament to the sacrifice that was once for all in the atoning death of Jesus Christ, who affects our reconciliation by shedding his blood, end quote. The significance is that Peter points out how intertwined this covenant of works and the covenant of grace are. All of those rituals and all of those rites handed down through the book of the law were consummated and accomplished in the sacrifice of Jesus, who sprinkled his blood on our behalf. This part of the story is important for the Jewish Christians to help them understand the fulfillment of the law through obedience to Jesus. And Peter was typically ministering to Jews and to Jewish, but uh, Paul was typically ministering to Gentiles. In this case, Peter was still likely addressing mostly Gentiles in his letter, but he also threw in that little sprinkling of the blood, I think, to help with some of the, the Jewish folks as well, pointing to Jesus, pointing to his sacrifice for sin. So as we try to wrap this up, I want us to uh, ask a question here and just say, hey, where are, where are you today? Are you feeling like a foreigner living in a land of strange people, feeling the eyes of accusation, feeling eyes of judgment? Are you feeling persecution? Maybe it's not physical threats of violence, but maybe it's something else. Maybe your job is threatened. Maybe a promotion is deferred for you. Or maybe the government is just making it really hard to live out your, conflict, your convictions and still survive in this world. Perhaps you want to educate your kids in a Christ-like way but are struggling to figure out how to do so faithfully. Amen. You're not alone. We can have peace, but only true peace comes from knowing and believing that Christ died to save sinners. Les may have already mentioned some of this. Uh, his quote from John, but John 14 says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, Neither let them be afraid. John 14, 27. John also says in chapter 16, verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's actually NIV. John 16, 33. Our ultimate comfort comes from knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified. Brothers and sisters, you can know this peace and comfort if you trust in Jesus and cast your cares on him. Grace and peace be multiplied to those who believe, to those who are God's elect. And if you do not know him, 
then talk to someone. Talk to an elder. Talk to someone who does. Ask questions. Read your Bible and seek him with all your heart. God has chosen his people from the foundation of the world, but we can't know exactly who those people are. So be the means to the end and graciously encourage others to follow Jesus with you. We want peace, and peace and comfort comes only from God. We can have peace knowing that God saves to the uttermost and that it's his power and his greatness that does it, not anything that we have done on our own. Let us pray. Lord, you are king, and you reign over all things. So many things are happening in this world that cause us to fear. But you know them all, and you are still sovereign. Help us to have peace and comfort in all that we do, knowing that you are in control over every speck of dirt, every blade of grass, and every heart. We need you to convict our hearts when we stray and lead us to the gospel of Jesus Christ who alone saves us through his death on the cross. Lord, pierce our hearts even now, that if even even one of us here has not been pierced by your spirit, I pray that you would do it now and let your Holy Spirit come, killing the sin. Let the old person pass away and let the new man reign in its place by the sanctifying of your spirit. Lord, all glory and honor be to you and your holy word. Amen. Amen. And now we can stand. Please stand with me and sing. Let's uh, sing number 207 in your contus. Jehovah to my Lord has said. Number 207. Christ's blood has been shed and has been sprinkled on you, making atonement for your sins. It is now time for us to come to the table together as one body to the piecemeal. It is our privilege to do so, as established by Christ the night that he was betrayed into the hands of sinners. This is the consummation of our coming together on Lord's Day. After we've been called into worship, we've confessed our sins, we've been declared forgiven by the blood of Jesus, and we've been sanctified through our common confessions, the reading of the word, the singing of psalms, and the preaching of the word. So now it is time for communion. Remember that the the process is intentional, it's purposeful, and it's biblical. This is our pattern for life. As we get ready to distribute the bread and the cup, remember and believe that Christ gave up his body and blood for us who are called according to his purpose. Remember that we are also called into the unity of the faith and that these people who around you, who you commune with, are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one family. If you are not sure whether to take communion or not, we have a statement at the bottom of the bulletin on that back page. Communion is for everyone who has been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, being sealed in this way by God with the promises of redemption. You acknowledge that only through Christ are you redeemed, and it's by his authority that you live and conduct yourselves. The charge is this. Have grace and peace multiplied to you through the sanctification of the Spirit. Live out lives with grateful and thankful hearts as you reflect on the wonderful work of God and of Christ, and the way that he humbly draws us in and saves us. Faithfully lead lives in devotion to Christ, day in and day out, being men, women, husbands, wives, and faithful children that we're called to be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Receive the benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, 
through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.